Let us pray. Loving God, may the words that flow from our mouth be inspired by your Holy Spirit. Draw us to a deeper understanding of who you are and who you call us to be. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this week uh, we have our last little bit of Mark for some time. Uh, Next Sunday, as uh, Marianne suggested, we begin the first Sunday of Lent. And during Lent, we're going to take our way through John's Gospel. Um, If you avail yourself of the amazing daily reflection resource that Graham Leo has uh, wonderfully prepared for us again, um, you can go from the beginning of John's Gospel all the way to the end of John's Gospel. But on the Sundays throughout Lent, we're going to work our way through the end of Jesus' ministry and teaching in John's Gospel. Uh, But rather than get to the last uh, week in Mark and try and cram the whole Gospel into one sermon, um, I'm really only going to focus on one part of the reading that Dawn read for us. In fact, I'm mostly just going to focus on one word. It was a common belief in Jesus' time that any form of physical infirmity was either a result of personal sin or generational sin. Generational sin means that your mother or your father or your grandparents or great-great-great-great-great-parents did something wrong and God was punishing you. Unhelpfully, occasionally, you still hear this type of perspective within the Christian church. But I actually think today it's more common in our secular world. Now, the secular world tries to tell us that it has a sense of religious neutrality, but more, I think, than it is aware of, um, it is influenced by the world religions. The notion of karma in the sense that you get what you deserve, has become so popularised and normalised that it's quite common now when you see an unfortunate or an unjust situation occur that somebody might respond with words similar to, I hope karma gets them. Leprosy was seen by many in that culture as God's judgement and punishment for sin. Yet Jesus, in his response to and healing of this leper, says nothing about forgiving his sins. Rather, in the words of the translation that we read this morning, he was moved with pity. Now, you may have picked up that there's lots of different versions of the Bible, uh, lots of different um, translations Probably the one that's most common, word that's most commonly used in most translations is not pity, but compassion. The Greek word can mean both. It's either filled with or moved with pity or compassion. With all that's going on in our world at the moment, we could be forgiven for buying into this secular way of thinking that sees us long to understand the cause and the effect of everything in our world. We want to see politicians held to account for their misdeeds. We want to wait expectantly for 
explanations of investigations so that we know exactly who we can blame. And we long for personal failure to be publicly exposed so that we can have any real sense of justice. And church and followers of Jesus aren't immune from trying to get sucked into this way of thinking about the world, to demand satisfaction, if you like. Yet, in this short encounter with the leper, we see something different. And that difference is evident over and over again as humanity deals with suffering, loss and tragedy. We see it not only just in Scripture, but in ordinary life. And ordinary life is full of tragedy, suffering and loss. What we see, as much as it is important that we have a sense of understanding, a sense of justice and equity, it's in the response to that loss, suffering and tragedy that we see the most power and influence. It's where I see God at work. And I see God at work most clearly in these times. God's love and God's nature is most fully revealed in response. And in Mark's Gospel, we see and we're shown what good compassion looks like. Now, you might say, well, isn't all compassion good? Well, I'm not so sure. What about compassion that says, there, there, everything's okay, and yet then goes about their everyday business? Doesn't it seem somewhat emotionless? What about compassion that gets caught up in the moment but then gets distracted by what's happening next? Isn't that not substantial? What about compassion that wants to be seen to impress others? Isn't that fraudulent? In Jesus' response to the leper, we see the two marks of good compassion. Firstly, compassion is risky. Jesus exhibits very risky behaviour by touching the leper. He risks both infection but also being ostracised from the community because of ritual uncleanliness. Now, I would say that this is not a way to read scripture and then give yourself justification not to follow government health directives. But it clearly reminds us that compassion can be costly. And haven't we seen numerous examples in the last 12 months of frontline workers showing deep compassion for others by putting themselves at risk for the care and the well-being and the life of others. While all of us aren't called to be in their position of frontline workers, and for that matter, we're not also called to do exactly everything in the same way that Jesus did it. Jesus was God after all. We are called to learn from those experiences that we see and the example that is set both by Jesus and the amazing compassion we see 
in humanity. Compassion is risky. Good compassion also is anonymous. It's not motivated by drawing attention to ourselves or on the promise of reward. Many of our schools now have community service programs as part of their culture. In fact, our very own Cassie Carpenter um, was part of establishing the program at All Saints that led to national recognition. Our schools have begun to understand that to develop the whole student, they need help to see that it's about more than just them. They need to be exposed and there needs to be a sense of discipline and enculturation of how we are called to serve and care for others. And Christians need that as much as school students do because we live in a world that is so self-focused that we also need that discipline of making sure that we practice service. At All Saints, they get service learning badges and certificates. But you don't get that in the church. You just need to do it. But we need to practice it. It needs to become part of our DNA. Jesus orders the man that he heals to keep quiet, which does seem quite strange, and it's a whole other sermon in and of itself. But for Mark, you have the sense that as you read it, the most important thing is for Jesus to be known as the Son of God by his death and resurrection, not just his works and his teachings. Scholars call that the messianic secret. For us as Christians, it's important that people know that what we do and why we do it isn't because we're good, but it's because of who God is and what Christ did. And that's part of our discipline. John the Baptist had this little statement that I use as a personal prayer that I might decrease, that he might increase. Good compassion sees us put ourselves in situations that could cost us emotionally, financially, spiritually, and even physically. It takes the chance of being hurt or rejected or refused and does not seek congratulations or reward. For my next point, I'm not going to move into another verse And I'm sort of not going to move from that word compassion. You see, one of the things I like to do is try and find the origins of the words and their meanings, and that's where you get the difference between pity and compassion. But there's a little bit of scandal around this particular verse, because if you go back to some of the early manuscripts, you'll find that the word that is used for pity and compassion isn't in that that uh, manuscript. In fact, it's the word not compassion but anger. Now, if you read this verse again, 
Jesus was moved with anger. It completely changes it, doesn't it? We can understand Jesus moved with compassion. But what about Jesus being moved by anger? Does that make sense? Well, I'm not here today to actually say which translation got it right and whether we should have the word anger in it or compassion in it. But what I think we can do is actually learn something from placing the word anger here that might be able to stand us in good stead, not just this morning, but in our everyday life. We can ask ourselves, why would Jesus be filled or moved by anger? Was he angry with the leper for disturbing him? Well, that doesn't quite fit with what Jesus just said before this passage begins. And he went throughout Galilee proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. That's what he was doing. So if somebody else was coming along, it doesn't seem right that Jesus would get angry because of that. Is he angry because he thinks the leper is assuming that Jesus has a choice as to whether he will hear him, heal him or not when he says, if you choose to heal me? Now again, if we go back to the original usage of this language, scholars will tell you that if we were properly translating that in English, it would sound something more like, if you want to, Jesus, and I know that you do, you are able to cleanse me. Is Jesus angry because society sees him as unclean when he's just sick? Or is he angry at the distorted understanding of God that sees this man excluded? Now, this is the type of thing that will keep biblical scholars amused for not just days, but months and years and lifetimes. And I'm not going to preach for that long. I promise. But if we take that word anger as it was originally intended, I think it can provide for us a model for good anger. Now, you might say, well, isn't all anger bad? Well, I'm not so sure. If you believe, as I do, that Jesus exemplified goodness, then you can't ignore that Jesus actually gets angry. He overturns the tables in the temple and he gets angry with the religious elite. My favourite saying that Jesus says is, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. I sometimes mutter that under my breath in my own church to myself. The psalm that's actually set down for today has this beautiful voice in, verse in it. It says, For his anger is but for a moment, his favour for a lifetime. Anger can be good if it is righteous anger. Righteous anger comes from witnessing injustice in the world. Jesus seems to witness, in this instance, a man who is experiencing injustice, an imbalance or a distorted view of God. And I can understand if he was stirred to anger. 
Anger can also be good if it causes us to act to heal and restore. To just store up your anger and do nothing with it just builds up and eats away at us inside. We live in a world where everybody seems to be able to be an expert critic. But in the world in which we live in, it's a very rare person who actually does something proactive and productive about the thing and the situation that everybody else is too ready to criticise. To take out anger aggressively causes conflict. But if we follow the learning from the psalm, we see that favour trumps anger in God's economy. Anger is just for a moment. It's there to arrest us and get our attention. But then anger gives way to favour. To respond with healing and restoration as Jesus does is our model for dealing with things in the world that stir us to anger. Righteous anger over the things that we see as wrong in the world should stir us to raise up and to restore the victim rather than to drag down who we might see as the perpetrator. It's when we respond in this way that the world sees God's nature and not our emotion. When the victim is lifted up, we more clearly see the cause of the injustice and the obvious imbalance to the way that things should be. The Christian worldview has actually been incredibly foundational in our own legal and justice system. Perhaps we should be more ready just to trust in the good workings of that and less ready to criticise and more ready to find ways that we can actually work for personal healing and restoration. Last week, I pressed Bishop John on miracles and their meaning and the impact in the world and the church today. And I used uh, the expression, small miracles, that we should be more aware of small miracles. So I wanted to spend a little bit of time as I finished this morning talking about a way that we might be able to be aware of the small miracles, which I believe that small and large miracles are part of a Christian's journey, whether we realise them or not. But often, as I suggested last week, we're looking for the big, the bold, the brash, something to radically change everything about the world. And when we're doing that, often we're seeking... God's intervention for something big and we think, again, cause and effect. If God gives us something big, we have to give something big back to God. I know I have been guilty, but I wonder whether you have been guilty of praying a prayer that goes something like, God, if only you help me, I promise I'll be a better person. I'll go to church every single Sunday. We see throughout Scripture that God is longing for faith and for obedience. And they're normally just in small matters. When we think God requires mighty deeds, God is wanting to start with the small. 
The first thing that God seeks is an affirmative response, a yes, then trust, and then faith. While we are waiting for God to put that incredibly important task in front of us, or that role in the church that is going to be so critical and could change the fabric of our own church, or maybe even the world, while we're waiting for that to happen, we risk missing the countless number of small yeses, those little ideas, those opportunities that God is wanting for us to say yes to and accept. And as we do that, God is revealed. It's much easier to see God at work in the world when we just simply say yes to the small needs around us or when we address the small faults in our lives. This is how we become aware of the small miracles. I'm sure we are going to continue to scratch our heads with the whys, the hows, and the whos of the world that we live in. But I do pray that we will either respond with godly compassion or stirred to restorative action and be open to the small opportunities that God puts in front of us that will remind us that God is love. And on this Valentine's Day, I think that that's much more powerful than any box of chocolates or bunch of roses. That enables that love to become known and revealed to the world because of what Christ did, but through us. Let us pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you meet us and you heal us and you restore us. But help us not to overlook your call and your challenge for us to be your hands and feet in this world. In a world that is longing for deep and meaningful love and connection, as we have found that in you, might we so readily give that love to one another. Might your love be known powerfully through your church. Might it be known powerfully through each one of us. Amen. Why don't we continue to sing and stand together?